right, welcome back everyone to our Todd's podcast. Our guest today is Congressman Scott Franklin, who is a Lakeland native, been dabbling in politics a little, uh, did a little bit of local politics in 17, and then uh, moved on to Congress in 2020, I think it was, was it 2020? Elected in 2020. Elected in 2020, took office in 2021. Uh, Scott was a pilot in the United States Navy. And we're going to get into a few questions, and hopefully you'll find this interesting. But right out of the gate, what's your middle name? Because you go by Scott, and it's your middle name. My middle name is Scott. but uh, Your first name. First name is Clifford. And is, is that a family name? It is a family name, though no one can really tell me how it came to be. For everyone else in the family, it was a middle name. For some reason, they decided to make it my first one, which has really caused a lot of confusion right. all my life. And the good thing is it helps me screen out telemarketers. If anybody calls a house looking for Clifford, they, right. uh, actually nobody calls a house anymore because we, we don't have landlines. Well, my middle name is Todd. Okay. I'm Raymond Todd. So, okay. you know, it's kind of a cruel trick that I tell people my parents played on me because, you know, there's usually a spot for a middle initial, but not a middle name. Right. And Raymond is my first name, and I was named after my grandfather and my uncle. And Todd is a random name, I think. And uh, uh, But I've always been that, and I, my uncle was my Uncle Ray. But, you know, there's a few of us like that that go by our middle name. And yeah. Yeah. I was wondering what your middle name was. My dad, who was in the military, he was in the Army, he did not have a middle name. And so he always was referred to as Richard NMI Dantzler, no middle initial. Yeah. And I always thought that was kind of funny. Well, Harry Truman didn't have a middle name either. The S he made up. It was just, really? it was Harry Truman. And they finally said, no, no, man, you got to have a middle name. He's like, all right, it's S. <laughs> and he just made it up. Yeah. That's what I'm told. So you were born in Georgia, um, grew up in Lakeland. When did you move here? Uh, moved when I was 13. Okay. So all of our family, uh, prior to us coming to Florida, had been in Georgia for a couple of hundred years, North Carolina before that, Virginia, Boston. Right. So we've kind of moved down the coast. And uh, so, yeah, I, I went to high school here in Lakeland, but that's... Lakeland uh, High School? Yeah, Lakeland High. Uh, did you play any sports in high school? Uh, by high school, I was just doing track. I'd okay. grown up playing a little bit of everything and played football in Georgia, uh, golf, track, all those things. and got to Lakeland and... Uh, you know, the size of the line was a little different at Lakeland High School than what I was accustomed to before. So they I was always harder. a runner and a jumper. Yes, I was always a scrawny kid. Uh, not so much anymore, but I was, you know, I started my senior year at 5'6 and graduated at 5'11, but I still weighed, you know, about 130 pounds. And then uh, I got to Gainesville and discovered eating and <laughs> drinking without parental uh, supervision. So, um, and my family is, my mom's family is from Georgia. They were, she was born in Adel and raised in Moultrie in the South Park. Sure, and my dad, right. his father was a tobacco farmer in South Carolina and they got hit with the bow weevil infestation. So he moved down to Winter Haven to be a farmer. And so, yes, it's interesting how we all come down here right. uh, one way or another. In high school, were you interested in student government or what were your extracurricular activities other than track? Yeah, I was. I um, never really thought about it, you know, politically so much, but just got involved. I was... Uh, Oh gosh, starting in, in 10th grade, I was uh, class vice president. 11th grade, I was class president. Um, didn't have office as a senior, but um, yeah, I was, I was involved in student government along the way and club officers and things like that. And what year did you graduate? 82 from like 82. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 77. My younger brother was 80, so we got you by a couple of years. How did you, you went to the Naval Academy. Yeah. Is the Navy in your family? How did you get involved? Did you say, hey, I want to fly and I want to fly Navy jets, so here's my 
So a little bit of all that. Yeah, I would say um, no direct ancestors were Navy so much, but uh, everyone in our family has served. It's uh, not like it was one of those things drilled into you. It's just kind of one of those examples that I follow. But uh, everyone in my family going back to really the early 1700s has served in the military. I had a uh, eight eighth great grandfather that uh, was with George Washington, Lieutenant Colonel wow. Washington in the French and Indian War, and we've been involved in everything since then. Um, as a little kid, I was interested in flying. My first really memory that kind of drove me to what I ultimately did was um, living in Houston in 1969. I was five years old. And the astronauts had just come back from landing on the moon. There was a ticker tape parade, and all these guys are riding down the street, and these con- sitting up on the backs of convertibles. But the Blue Angels came over flying F-4 Phantoms, and that, that's what really got my right. attention and, and something I always wanted to pursue. So, so you went to the Naval Academy. What was your major? What did you study? What did you do with the Naval Academy in Annapolis? Yeah, so I was an oceanography major there, hey. which is a little different, you know, being a landlocked Floridian, not not a whole lot of that here, but just something that always interested me. Uh, everybody at Navy graduates with a Bachelor of Science, whether you're a history major or an astrophysics, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets a, a BS. Uh, so I was, I was involved in that academically. Sports-wise, everybody's required to play sports, too. Uh, I was uh, on the sailing team initially as a plebe, and I'd kind of broken the code that when, when you're a plebe, you can't leave the academy. But if you're on the sailing team, you can go away on weekends. So it was a way to escape. And uh, as soon as I got freedom after plebe year was over, I started playing rugby, which was a sport I'd never been exposed to until I got to Navy. So going in the Navy, how did you then gravitate into being a, uh, an aviator as opposed to you know, uh, a, a non-aviator in the Navy. Well, I knew that's what I wanted to do going in. And in fact, in high school, I was looking at the service academies and I'd gotten really good advice by someone who said, listen, the paperwork's all pretty similar. If you really want to serve your country, uh, you know, all the services are good. So give your first shot, but have a backup. And I've always been one about having uh, plenty of options available. So I applied to all the academies and, um, Ended up being a you know a blessing of riches. I got appointed to Navy, um, West Point, and Air Force, so wow. I got to choose. Uh, and it really t- uh, was solidified when I went up and visited a friend of mine who graduated from Lakeland a year ahead of me, who was a plebe at the Naval Academy at that time. And uh, I just had come to the conclusion I knew I wanted to fly, but if something happened and I was physically unable to, if my eyes went bad, I felt the Navy offered better options. You know, you could fly, you could go Marine Corps because right. the Marines are part of the Department of the Navy. Uh, you could go submarines, you can go ships, you could go SEALs. So to me, the Naval Academy offered everything that all the other academies offered. So it was just more more options. And again, that's kind of been my, a little bit of a mantra in my life is always have options. And did you meet your wife when you were in college or once you were in the Navy or how did, how did you meet her? No, she likes to tell everybody she's much younger. <laughs> we, we met on a blind date. I was already uh, out of the academy had just finished flight school and was home in Lakeland on leave, Christmas leave. So she's a Lakeland girl? No, she's from Brandon, but her sorority sister Uh. is from Lakeland. And uh, we got set up on a blind date. Uh, That was, I guess, over Christmas of 88. And uh, her sorority sister told us, I've got the the perfect guy for you. I promise you, you're going to marry this guy. And um, so Amy tells tells her friend, says, if I marry this guy, you can be my maid of honor. I always thought for probably 20 years that she was serious about that. She was really being facetious because she thought there's no way in hell that I'm going to I'm going to marry some guy, <laughs> some Navy guy off a blind date. Well, it's obviously worked out for you. You've been married, what, 37? 30, well, 33 in November. 33 in November. Yeah. She was still young. You know, she, she graduated from Florida. Um, uh, let's say class of 90 for her. So she was four years in school okay. behind me and we got married pretty soon after she graduated. Good, yeah. good. 
So your naval career, what did you fly? Uh, mostly torpedo bombers. I was always based on aircraft carriers. So uh, S3 Vikings was my primary platform. Got about 3,500 hours in those. And uh, along the way, to, to go through the training, I flew uh, T-34 Mentors, which was a turboprop, uh, T-2 Buckeyes, which was the first jet, and then A-4 Skyhawks. And then along the way, I got I was able to cross-train in F-14, so I flew Tomcats uh, some. Okay. And... Uh, you know, other time in, in planes like P-3 Orions and things like that, but but mostly torpedo bombers, always carrier base. So in, in doing a little research, it's, it it said that you had flown or been stationed, or station is the wrong word, but you'd flown off 11 different aircraft carriers. 13, actually. 13? Yeah, well. What's what's the first rush like when you first do, you do your first catapult launch off of an aircraft carrier? It is the most exhilarating thing I have ever done up to that point and since then. There, there's really nothing else that compares to that. So it's, and did you have a full crew with you when you did your first? Or no, did you say, hey, let's no, just you're pry solo. him off? And... No, you're solo. First time you go to the ships by yourself. I mean, they take you out there on the wing of a flight lead, but right. then you peel off. And you, know, you, you go out there flying formation off of someone's wing, and then they tell you you're overhead the ship, and it, you know, you're trying to steal a little peek down to look at it. And the first time, <laughs> first time I, I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe how small that is. I'd heard these all the analogies of, you know, it looks like a postage stamp from up above, and it really does. It's tiny. Anything. Right. I don't know how the heck that's going to happen? So, how many launches and did you do, or do you keep track of those? We I mean, do. I don't, and I don't have my logbook. And I've been trying right. to find that. It's it's right around eight hundred, a little over eight hundred carrier. Never got old. No, well, but well, never could get old really because you so, always had to be on top of your game. Yeah, I tell you, daytime carrier uh, takeoff and landings are, are the most fun I've ever had. Um, nighttime is just one of those things you have to do it. You bite the bullet, and anybody that tells you they like flying at night off the carrier is lying to you. Um, it's really just a, a matter of managing a little bit of fear and chaos, and and it's something that you. You either want to do fairly frequently, not because you like it, because you need to do it for currency and, and, and comfort level, or you don't want to do it at all. And the way the Navy runs it is uh, you have to have a carrier landing at night once every seven days, or else you go out of currency, and then you have to get a day uh, touch and go in a trap before you can go at night, and, and that gets hard to manage. So they, they don't want to allow people to get outside of seven days. So you know you got to go once a week, and if you're going right. to go once a week, you'd rather get in a rhythm. And I'd, I'd like to get on the night page, is what we call it. Right. I'd fly every night, and plus it just helps keeping you know your body clock adjusted to stay on the same rhythm. So how many of the S3s were typically on a carrier? I'm sure it depended on the mission, but I mean, was there typically ten of them? Or yeah, early early deployments we had ten. Later it moved to eight. Uh, it really depended on what was going on, and as other airframes were cycling in and out of the air wing, because we the S3 was a multi mission airplane. It was originally designed to hunt submarines. Right. And uh, after the Cold War, that changed. It started picking up a lot of other missions, different radars, and was sort of an armed reconnaissance, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. It'd do a little bit of everything. And you had uh, three other crew mem- members yeah, with you. Yeah, you always had one. Uh, you didn't have to have people in the back, so it was a side-by-side, a pilot and a co-pilot who wasn't the guy, the person in the right seat was not a pilot. They were right. a navigator, and then you might have two in the back. So it was either a two or four. Was that crew typically the same, or your co-pilot was always the same? That no, it's... Uh, just whoever got the assignment that day? Yeah, yeah. And how many pilots like you would have been on a typical mission? I mean, they can't just have 10 of y'all. They've got to keep these airplanes going on a fairly regular basis, and you have to have rest. And Well, you know, on any particular cycle and on the, the carrier, they'd break up the day in cycles, and we have 10 to 12 cycles, which would be just rounds of flights. 
Uh, there might be a couple of S3s on a particular cycle, but then you'd also have F-14s, F-18s, depending on when, when this right. was, A-6s, A-7s, helicopters, prowlers, E-2 Hawkeyes with the dome. So a little bit of everything goes up on every cycle. Did you typically try and get the same plane that you were used to? So oh, no. No. It, you, I mean, you have one, one they, yeah, once you get senior enough, you have one with your name painted on it. Right. It's not your plane. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. But we, I didn't know cycled. if you knew the idiosyncrasies of each plane. Oh, you and get say, to know hey, this all. one I got a feather harder oh, yeah. or no, there harder. Were, yeah. yeah, there was always every squadron had the Christine, you know, the plane that just had demons. That, right. You know, you, you would fly it, but you're always being a little careful knowing that something could, could happen there. Um, What was like? life like on an aircraft carrier what was a typical deployment for y'all six months anywhere from six to eight months yeah they've gotten longer now but 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 notionally it was six months and so when we were when you're on sea duty which is a three-year tour uh, you probably expect to do a couple of six-month deployments during that tour and then uh, but in a regular cycle you you deploy for six months then you come home for two or three months and kind of a, a wind down and people be rotating out but then you go right into training for the next cycle. So in the year leading up to a six-month deployment, you're gone about eight or nine months of that time. So uh, when, when Amy and I hit our 10th our anniversary, we did the math and looked at the calendar and realized we'd only been together about five years. Wow. Gone a lot. It's a lot of separation. And I don't think people understand the stress that that puts on a family. I, I did not come from a military family. My dad did two years in the Army, and my brothers and I never served. But people don't understand the stress that either a military family goes under or the family of a political person um, is the elected official can fight back, but the family members typically have to take it. They and get I know, along for the ride. Yeah, yeah. And I know when my older brother was running for state senate, there was one of his opponents started going after him a little bit. And you know who he is. I'll tell you after the podcast is over. And luckily, my mom and dad were in England at the time. I said, I'm so glad mom's not having to listen to this <laughs> because she would just be incensed. And, yeah. you know, Rick had the ability to battle back and fight back and respond. But as a family member, you kind of sit there and take it. Well, I, my wife would tell you that her time as a Navy spouse was the most invaluable time she spent. She was she didn't really ask for it. I guess she, indirectly she did. She, right. she did, but she didn't really know what she was getting into. Right. Uh, but it made her a very independent woman. And she Good. said, you know, she was not that way before. So uh, yeah, all these years later, the political world is a lot like that, like being a military spouse. And I, it's not cliche. Finally, we're we're recognizing the role that military families and spouses right. in particular pay, but. Uh, folks out there doing their thing in the military absolutely couldn't do it without support from back home. Uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly. With and that. it's the same in politics too. Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, I, I know that when I ran, I told my kids they were 16 and 14 at the time or 17 and 15. I forgot what. And I said, Hey, I don't, I've never done this before. Uncle Rick's done it. I don't know what people may or may not say. I said, if anyone says something, just ask me and I'm happy to tell you the truth. Yeah. You know, don't listen to, you know, people outside. Just ask me and I'll tell you. And luckily, it never got ugly. Local politics is a little different than the federal level. I mean, you guys play hardball in the majors and, you know, it's different. And uh, you, you have spent a couple of years local politics. Mm-hmm. And now you've got a couple of years under your belt at national. Um, what's the difference Oh, lots of differences. Well, just, you know, one thing on the kids, I, we're, we're fortunate. All three of our kids are up and grown. So they're, they're their own adults. They have right. their own opinions. They, none of them even lives in Florida. Right. Um, 
So I've I've very purposefully left them out of everything that we've done. I, I'm not one that tries to drag the family into it right. and do all the little, you know, the canned pictures and that kind of thing. They live their own lives. And interestingly, we've got all kinds of political perspectives, and we finally agree to disagree sometimes at, at Thanksgiving. But Life is easier if you don't bring up politics. Yeah, well, you know, there's a reason they say that. Yeah. Um, but, I, yeah, I'd say the biggest difference is um, – I love local politics. I, I would tell anyone who has any motivation, any interest whatsoever to try getting involved on a local board on all the municipalities need them. But the great thing is you can take decisive action and quickly see results. And they, they may not be good results. I mean, they're good or bad, but you can then you can course correct, tweak, and, and right. go down the road. It's just so frustrating at the federal level how slowly things work. I was a county commissioner for eight years, and there was only five of us. You were city commissioner for a few yeah. years, and there were seven of y'all. Yeah. You know, if you only need to get two other people to agree with you, you're not banging your head against the wall so much. You may lose, and I was very comfortable losing decisions for one. I really liked only having to get two people to kind of go along with me on different things. You had the same thing, but you just alluded to, you know, now you've got all these people in Congress that are from all over the world. I just think ever getting to a decision is almost an act of God, it seems like. It's hard. And another thing that really differentiates Florida and local government and all politics here from the federal level is our sunshine laws in Florida. Right. Uh, you know, they can be frustrating at times um, at the local level. Uh, some of us fellow commissioners would commiserate that we often felt like we were the least informed in the room because everyone else could, could talk together and conspire right. and come up with a strategy, and we couldn't do any of that. So we had to trust that what we were being fed by staff and others was the full scoop, but there are no backroom deals at all. Uh, that's not the case in Tallahassee. It's not the case in Washington. And so it... Uh, yeah, they all promulgate the rules from the top down. And right. at the local level, you just have yeah. to deal with whatever they give you. Yeah. And what I've what I've seen in Florida at the state level is they're super majorities. So they don't even have to really talk to the other side. Yeah. I mean, you guys in Congress right now, you got a four-member majority good or bad i mean but you do have to try and build it's for the most part yeah yeah todd's podcast is sponsored in part by svn saunders ralston dantzler real estate since 1996 the firm has offered unrivaled brokerage services throughout florida georgia and alabama with over 90 expert advisors throughout the region our team has the knowledge and resources to help clients realize their most ambitious real estate investment goals. When you choose SVN, Saunders Ralston Dancer Real Estate, you have access to a diverse suite of commercial and land services, including forestry consulting, land management, auctions, property management, commercial leasing, and negotiating conservation easements. If you're seeking to invest in land or explore commercial real estate opportunities in the Southeast, contact us today at svnsaunders.com or call 877-518-5263 to connect with an advisor today. Once again, that's svnsaunders.com or by phone at 877 877- Five one eight five two six three. Um, your Navy buddies. I, I just got one or two other questions on that. Did, did you ever hang out with them? Do you ever see them? Sure. Yeah. Um, any of them local, or do y'all get together? Hey, we're all going to fly to Omaha or wherever, and 
just hang out or a little of all that. I um I have friends who are in the D.C. area. A lot of folks uh, right. have uh, taken jobs up in that area, uh, but I still stay in touch with a lot of my Naval Academy buddies. Uh, several of us had made a, a a commitment to go take a sailing trip down to the islands back when we were eighteen. We said we'd do it in thirty years, which you know thirty years when you're eighteen sounds like you know might as well be a thousand right. years. So we didn't make it at that point. We're about ten years later than that, but um, you know, three of our, three of us got together. Uh, with our spouses down in, uh, in the islands on a sailing trip this past year, which was great. So you did a great number of years active duty, then you went into the reserve. So when you came back, um, did you immediately go to work for Lanier Upshaw? Is that is that a family business? Is that no? It wasn't a you family. You just brought business. in, or how how does that work for you? So my dad had done that in Georgia, and that's how we ended up in Florida. Okay. He, he owned an agency uh, up in the small town where we've been there, and it was a small town and. Things were not, it was, wasn't a growing town. There wasn't a lot of opportunity. And he had gotten to know a gentleman who's, who's since passed away, Chuck Beauvais, who was the president of Lanier Upshaw at the time. And, and I kind of liken it to the, the Clampets and the Beverly Hillbilly story. You know, and Chuck was like, listen, listen, Jim, Florida's a land of opportunity. You need to come on down. So we, we loaded up the truck and, and moved down in, in 1978. And that's just what my dad did. Uh, I honestly never had any interest in it. I always wanted to fly. And all I knew when I left to go to college is that the company had a no nepotism rule. There were no family right. members that were allowed. They had agreed to do that. And which is fine with me. It wasn't anything that I wanted to do. Uh, but along the way, uh, the Navy requires you to get a graduate degree. So I'd done my MBA uh, more of just to check the block with the Navy, but just to see what I might be interested in later on. And uh, friends of, or some of my dad's partners had um, gotten together and, and, knew that I was pursuing a business degree, knew that I was thinking about maybe things outside of the Navy and had gone to my dad and said, hey, listen, you know, we've always had this rule, but we'd be willing to, to waive that if Scott would be interested. So uh, my dad would have never, never approached me in a million years about trying to suggest that I leave the Navy and come back here. I think, you know, he enjoyed living vicariously through what I was doing. Right. and never wanted to be, you know, responsible if something didn't work out that he had maybe tempted me to leave. But, you know, I've told folks it was flying, you know, being a naval aviator was the coolest thing in the world at 22. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I got my uh, degree from Navy the week the Top Gun came out. I'd been in Miramar the summer before while they were filming the, the movie. I had orders to Pensacola. Life right. was great. And it was fun. It was fun while we were single. And my wife, I mean, while we were uh, married with no kids. And, uh, you know, Amy would fly over. She had a couple of times where she could fly over and visit when we were pulling to port. Uh, once we had kids, that all changed. So yeah. when I left, it was gone. And, and I was missing watching kids growing up. So I tell folks, you know, it went from the best job in the world at 22 and a not so much fun by the time I was 35 and had three kids under five and was gone, you know, eight months a year. So uh, I thought I'd have the opportunity to kind of have my cake and eat it too by going out and pursuing uh, business, but then staying in the reserves. And, you know, prior to 9-11, the reserves were a pretty, pretty sweet gig. You know, right. to do a weekend a month and two weeks a year, continue to get promoted and do the things that you like to do. Uh, after 9-11, you know, that all changed. And um, I found that out very quickly. I left active duty in 2000, joined a reserve unit over at Central Command, and then promptly on 9-11, uh, got called up. So I uh, Called up twice. I was up. I was over in Bahrain for a couple of months right after 9/11, and then got home for a few weeks for about a month, and then got called up again for another year, and uh, just finally decided 
there's a reason I left active duty. Right. And uh, so I decided to go into the individual reserves after that. So that kind of meant promotion was off the table, but at least I wasn't going to be deploying you know, at the drop of a hat over and over again. So you were a pilot your whole career. Mm-hmm. Do you still like to fly? Do you miss flying the jets? Do you have a private plane that you fly or, you know, so, how do you get your fix on of getting up? Well, I, I don't get, yeah, right now it's flying American Airlines back and forth every <laughs> week from either Tampa or, or Orlando to D.C. I do miss flying, but you, you can't do that kind of flying anymore. Um, I I had a plane. I was a partner with another uh, guy here in Lakeland uh, in a plane that I used for business for a number of years and really enjoyed that and got a chance to do a little bit of, of fun traveling uh, it's just not the same, you know, not zipping around at treetop level at 400 knots or dropping bombs or, you know, making a lot of noise. You just, yeah. you can't do that anymore. So I've, I've kind of moved on beyond it. What other jobs did you have growing up? Cause you don't seem like a kid who would have ever been allowed just to sit around just no. like we weren't, we, we either Never. had to play sports or have a job that was, you know, we, some of it was in the backyard. We had all boys in our neighborhood. So we always had teams, but if you're not playing a sport, in school, then you're working, Absolutely. even if it's menial work. What did you do uh, in, in high school? Well, that work ethic is something that, you know, I know my dad got it from his grandfather. Mm-hmm. That's been passed down. That was an absolute. I, I remember as a little kid, even when there were things that I wasn't big enough to be able to do, my dad would require me to go outside and watch him do it. He's like, I don't care. You know, you, you, you may not be able to do it, but you're going to learn how to do it by watching until you can. So uh, there were no Saturday cartoons or anything like that. I was yeah. always out doing the, doing the work. So uh, when I when I got old enough to work, even before I was legally able, I was cutting grass around the neighborhood and putting the lawnmower in the back of my mom, putting the station wagon, yep. take me take me to where I needed to go and cut for. And it was five bucks to cut grass, and uh, that was big money. And I hopefully your parents paid for the gas to put. Oh in yeah, the so they, so that wasn't you lost. You kind of had a profit thing there. Yeah, they they've reminded me over time that they 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 furnish the equipment and, and all the all the uh, materials for that. But um, I think it, as much as anything else, they knew it was keeping me out of trouble doing. Yeah. It. But then I started my first official business was the Grove Park Lawn Service, okay. uh, right here behind uh, behind your office. I I lived in on Clarendon Avenue, a couple okay. streets behind Grove Park here and. And uh, another guy, Mike Meeks, and I, who lived on Meadowbrook, we had uh, the Grove Park Lawn Service, and we cut grass all over the neighborhood uh, for, you know, making whatever we could. And then uh, later on, I got to working at, at Williams & Williams um, Sports Clothing Store, which right. used to be across in the Lakeland Library. Yeah. Yeah. So. That building was the Lakeland Library? No, no, you know where the the Lake where, Williams. Li- where the where the library is on Lake Morton, uh, kind of across the street. Oh, Actually, okay. It's across the street from the museum, okay, uh, the art museum, all right, uh, Pope Museum of Art parking lot. That's I, where they were for a number of years. Yeah. So, so I would, I, and and before I was sixteen and had a car, I would finish at Lakeland High School and walk to work, and then, you know, work all afternoon if if sports weren't in season. Then my right. dad would pick me up after work. So, well, we. I was the middle of three boys, and so we all had yard work and chores to do. And we had a, I think we were on a half-acre lot, but it had a pretty high slope. And <laughs> we never had a self-propelled lawnmower. We had a push lawnmower <laughs> with a 19 or 21-inch deck, whatever it was. And I was so small and short, I couldn't just push the top bar. I had to get one hand on the middle bar and one on the top. <laughs> and if I knew how to cuss back then, I'm pretty sure I would have learned every word. And when we got a riding lawnmower, it was like I had just won the Indianapolis 500. I love mowing at that point. Oh, so you lived a life of privilege. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we had, we always had a a push mower, a snapper, 
and it was not self-propelled or anything. Yep. And, and we, when we Ours first was made, a lawn boy. Well, we had this this thing. It was heavy. I mean, those those snappers. Oh, I mean, yeah. they're durable, but they're heavy. Yes. And we initially had Bahia grass. And my dad pulled that out and put in St. Augustine, which is really thick. And to push a heavy mower, yeah. not self-propelled, we we had this bank down behind the house. I really found it ironic that the moment I went off to the Naval Academy, he cashed that thing in for a riding snapper. <laughs> but, and we never had a, a gas-powered edger. We had that little half moon oh, yeah. thing that you just had to hop on and just go all the way down, then get another <laughs> hoe and pull it out. And it's like, why doesn't someone make a tool? And, and amazing, they they did make those tools once we went off to school. Yep. Um, so now shifting gears a little bit to your time in Congress. Uh there's more personalities and you can shake a stick out up there. How do you deal? Because you seem like a very humble person. I know you to be a very humble person. How do you deal with the publicity seekers and the just total narcissists that are in Congress? And, you know, some of them just come across as jokers. Are they even serious? They seem like they're auditioning for a gig on, you know, one of the networks or trying to get on a magazine cover. It's, it's almost like, there's no statesmanship. I, I'm sure there is, but what you see on TV is just a bunch of head knocking. And it's frustrating. I'll tell you, it's 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 exhausting at times uh, because the folks, a lot of times, the folks that are getting the most attention are those. And uh, but I would tell you, there are a lot of very thoughtful, really smart, disciplined folks that are up there trying to do the right thing. But there there are definitely some who are there for the for the show and trying to build a brand beyond life in Congress. And that's, there's some of those on both sides of the aisle. Oh, absolutely. And I will, you know, no names or anything like that, but, um, but yeah, there's, there are a lot of people trying to get work done, but the problem, uh, there's a lot of problems, but a challenge we have now in this age of social media network or cable channels and all that is there's just so many people trying to get attention and, and then an outrage sells, and that's that's where uh, you know people can get attention and get a following by just prodding, you know, their own echo chamber and trying to keep them stoked and outraged. But you know, I wish I wish people, the public, would remember that every one of those things they're tuning into is doing it for the money at right. the end of the day, and so they're trying to find an audience that's that's looking to hear a particular message and then trying to keep them enraged so that they keep their attention. But I, I've I've always felt like if you can send a better quality person to make decisions, you get better decisions. And we all know who the people we're talking about are, but they keep getting reelected from their hometown. And I remember Adam Putnam uh, was a guest at one of our company barbecues. And uh, he said, guys, there's nothing you could do about Nancy Pelosi. Don't even let her get under your skin because you can't vote for her. All you can vote for is the people that you live, you know, in their district. And that made a lot of sense is don't get overwhelmed by the shenanigans if there's enough good people up there like you and the people that you deal with that are really trying to make a difference and trying to pass, you know, proper legislation. That's true. And a lot of folks are wanting, not wanting, but demanding that we opine and take a stance on every national issue even if there are a lot of things that aren't within our purview or within our control, even if I can't do anything about it, they still want to know. And, and everything is a binary decision. Well, not everything, but for a lot of people, it just becomes binary. You're either for this or you're against it. And I can be with somebody 99% of the time used to be, you know, Ronald Reagan, you say, right. find some, you know, a person who agrees with you 80% of the time is your friend, not your enemy. 
uh, now 95% of the time isn't good enough. Someone's going to pick that, that 5% of the time that you disagree and, you know, they could care less about anything else you have to say or do. And you hear that when you come home. It's not just in the halls of Congress. Oh, it's absolutely it's, when you come it, home. I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's like, well, is this the only thing you're judging me by is this one decision? And it's often like, do you have all the facts that I had? Do you have the benefit of the expert testimony, right. the staff research? I'm happy to give you more facts if you want to know yeah. why I made my And there's decision. a fine line. I certainly don't ever want to sound condescending like I know more. But I mean, the reality is when, do. When we're in that all day long. And right. you do see there's nuance to everything. Right. And, and people don't see that. And, you know, as long as people are open. To, to listening, and, and I love to listen. I love to get differing opinions and hear why people think differently. But if, if, if folks are locked in and not willing to listen, then there's really no there's no room to, to move forward together. Do you ever see this as a career for you? No. Good. And, and, I, and I say that. I don't think it ought to be anybody's career. I agree. I think your citizen legislatures, you go yep. up, serve your time, whether it's 2, 4, 8, 10, whatever the, the time is. Yeah. And I was never a big fan of term limits until I was term limited out. And thank goodness, or I'd have probably felt obligated to do one more term. And um, eight years was enough. Yeah. And smart people, good people come behind you. And, you know, they may not agree with what I agree with. They may not make the same decisions I made. But it's their turn to run it. It's yeah. not my turn to be there forever. And, you know, you've got folks in Congress and the Senate that have been there oh, yeah. forever. And I think part of it is... They didn't have anything behind them when they went up. This is their identity. You know, you, you've got options when you come back. When I came, when I got out, I, I never had to go anywhere. I just went to Bartow, but I was always a, an operating realtor, and I loved that, and I knew I was a realtor when I went in. I'm a realtor when I come out, but a lot of people don't know what to do once mm -hmm. they get out. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You, that, that reminds me of something that your partner, Dean Saunders, had told me that was, was something that some wisdom that Lawton Childs had passed down to him that said the worst thing, he, he felt that the worst thing that could ever happen to someone was to go into politics young. Right. Because um, there, there are a lot of temptations in there. You get, you know, even if someone goes in humble, you've really got to guard yourself because you've got people you know, blowing sunshine at you all the time that are trying to, you know, curry favor with you. And, uh, it's, it's, it's easy to lose your perspective. So, you know, for me, uh, I don't, I don't know how long I'll do this. Um, as long as I feel like I can be effective, I probably will. But, um, you know, this kind of came along at a time in our lives when I'd sold our business, right. um, all three of our kids are out of, out of college and often doing their own thing. And we don't have any grandkids yet. So, uh, my wife has told me that, uh, you know, once grandkids come along, I'm definitely going to be a solo act. So it, it's kind of a sweet spot in our lives right now to be able to do it. But uh, I just I don't think anyone ought to do it for a career. And I have a love hate relationship with whole with the term limit concept. I get it. I believe it. Right. When I look at across the dais and see a lot of ranking committee members that are in their 80s. No offense. My parents are there, but, you know, it's just there. There's a time when people need to turn it over and I'll let someone else uh, run with the baton. But, uh, you know, one of the things we do have, uh, and it's a little bit of a difference, and this is one of those things a lot of folks don't understand, on the Republican side of the aisle in Washington, we have strict uh, limits on how long you can chair a committee. And it's six years, and after that, you've got to give up the chairmanship or if you're the ranking member. And so for a lot of people, once they've had that leadership role, they don't want to go back to being rank and file. So we have a good, healthy turnover. Uh, we have 
in our Republican conference now, 222 members, I guess, uh, 60 percent of us have gotten there since 2016. Wow. So a lot of people don't understand. Well, you know, you see the, the old quote old folks up there and we certainly have those um, that you have know, talked to, to folks on the other side of the aisle. The young Democrats are really frustrated because everything with their committees is pure seniority. Right. And if you look when the when Pelosi was speaker and, and the Democrats had all the committee chairs, almost every one of them was over 80 years old. And that's frustrating if you're a 35 or 40 year old young Democrat coming to Washington, knowing like I've got to be here for 40 years before I could ever chair a committee. Right. And that's just wrong. But um, I think um, DC is very complex. Uh, you know, there's a term limits folks want six years. Um, I'll tell you, I, now that I've been there for a year and a half, six that's not enough. long enough. It is so complicated a process. I can't imagine how, how you would do that. I also see that, um, and you can kind of sense it from Tallahassee as well with the eight-year term limits there. Uh, the lobbyists and the staffers have a tremendous amount of control. And if people are worried about any kind of deep state, it would be like, you know, you start flushing all the all the elected representation out of there every six or eight years. The only people who are going to have control in D.C. are going to be the lobbyists and the staffers, the, the lifelong career bureaucrats. But in Tallahassee... <clears throat> It's a part-time gig, supposedly. I mean, they end up doing yeah. five. <laughs> Ask months. the reps; most yeah. of them will tell you that's right. not. But the it's case. sixty days in, yeah. and then you're supposed to come home, and then you go back for committees. Yeah, we all have friends that do it, and, and you know, it seems like total they've got four or five months tied up in it, so it makes it hard. Right. To, you have to have that job that will allow that, but you are reliant on staff yeah. because you're not a full-time legislator, and you've got to make a living. And you've got to have the people that you trust around you. And if well, we do too. It's yeah. even though ours is full time, right? The breadth of what you're having to kind of say grace over is just it's mind boggling. Right. And you know, and every year we'll have folks calling, emailing, writing us every day about particular bills. There are thousands of bills that are introduced, and what a lot of people don't know too is every two years at the end of a Congress. Everything is gone. Right. If it doesn't finish by the end of that con- Congress, it's over. So every even a bill that you've been trying to get for years, everything has to be reintroduced. It's all on a two-year cycle, and there's just so much to try to keep your head up. You know, most most of my peers would agree that you feel like you're about an eighth of an inch thick and, and 20,000 miles right. wide because you just got so many things to try to be on top of. Hello, this is your Polk State College President, Dr. Angela Garcia Falconetti. Call me Angela. Hola. Es su presidenta de Polk State College, uh, nuestra universidad en el condado de Polk. And I want to thank you for listening to Todd's podcast. Todd's a great friend. He's a wonderful leader in our community, and he's a great business professional. Don't forget to subscribe to Todd's podcast as each interview offers incredible insights. Mine may have some. I don't know if they're incredible, but into these great guests, you will not be disappointed. Who's your best friend in Congress? Um, or one of them. You don't have to give me the absolute best because I don't want you to. Well, I, you know, I would I actually have, I have a lot of friend, you know, good friends. I, I kind of think back to this old definition of, um, you know, there's there's friends for a reason, friends right. for a season, and friends for life. Uh, I've kind of gone, I'm moving into the friends for a season phase. Uh, my first term, we were still under a lot of COVID lockdowns. Right. We didn't get a chance to do a whole lot of things together. So this time has been different. We're finally starting to be able to, 
to do trips and travel together. I was just in Europe last week uh, inspecting a lot of defense installations, and, and those are great. When you travel with people, you get a chance to you know let the guard down and figure out who they're, what they're really like. There's also a requirement on those uh, CODELs, they call them congressional delegations, that they be bipartisan. That's a requirement to get them approved. And, you know, that that has been a very good way for me to meet people across the aisle. And, uh, you know, when you travel with folks and you socialize, the guard comes down and you figure out, like, you know, after, after you know, a, a, a cocktail, you can, you can say, now, help me understand. Right. How do, you, how do you get from here to there on this issue? Right. And we have a lot of those kinds of conversations that we would never have in D.C. Well, not never have in D.C., but they're, they're much harder to do. But that's how it should be, is you should be able to sit down with anyone and say, Tell me why you think the way you do and what's right. your reasoning. And then let me tell you mine yeah. and try and persuade them. It just seems like, and again, my perspective is the news and I stopped watching most of it, but it just seems like everyone's yelling at you, telling you what you're supposed to believe rather right. than trying to persuade you. Yeah. You know, well, I've make always, the argument. Tell me why I should believe what you believe. I've always believed I was, I was, I was into team sports. I believe in team activities. And I just think that, um, you know, a group of smart people coming together with different perspectives and experiences and backgrounds are going to formulate better decisions. That's why on the city commission here in Lakeland, I really enjoyed that. I was not a a proponent of the strong mayor system uh, because I felt that would concentrate too much power in one person's hand. That's great if you happen to like that person's ideas, but if you don't, I mean, there's a difference between a dictator and a benevolent dictator. And uh, I just, I felt that, you know, a group is going to be it's it's messier it's going to be more tedious but at the end of the day i think it's going to more often than not yield a better decision and certainly something that has greater buy-in than just a you know everything's my way of the highway and the county was like that too is there was a debate hey do we have a strong chairman right and we've decided not to and i think that's correct because the chairman all you do is run the meeting and you get a little bit more say over the agenda for the meeting you're getting ready to go into but you still have 20 percent of the vote you know and at the city you were one of seven right and your job is to persuade and to argue and try and get people to do it and i i, I found that local politics wasn't quite as ideological as it seems like it is in Tallahassee and DC. Oh, for sure. Here we were trying to fix roads, trying to fund the sheriff, trying to flush toilets, trying to build, you know, little league parks. And it wasn't like you guys have. It's, it's less, definitely less partisan. And, uh, you know, more, what I didn't really appreciate enough going into the city commission was how much, uh, you know, zoning and property rights and all that were, were a big piece of things. That That's a lot of what you end up doing and funding infrastructure, which is why I, I do have some angst seeing partisanship being driven down into all these local races now, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, a lot of times that's those aren't the decisions that are being made. Right. You know, if someone's trying to decide whether to put a new development in the, in, you know, on the street next to them, that's not a Republican or Democrat thing. It's it's a matter. It's of, a compatibility thing. Yeah, and and yeah, there's I understand there's philosophies on pro growth or anti growth and that kind of thing. But but uh, you know and now we're seeing people who want to run for city commission. You know, they want to know who, who you're endorsing in the presidential race. Right. It has nothing to do with that. And you know back to that's not going to change. Back to Adams thing. You right. Know? It's with about Nancy Pelosi. Well, I, I'm a commercial real estate broker, and I felt that you mentioned land use and zoning, some of the biggest decisions you make. And that's what I felt like some of the biggest 
impactful decisions I made other than funding different, you know, Mm -hmm. county operational is knowing what's compatible and knowing how to understand, can you put this next to that? What, how do you transition from a commercial to a single family? Do you do a lighter commercial? Do you do office? Do you do multifamily? And so I I agree with you. Uh, It's a lot less ideological and it's a lot more pragmatic. And I enjoyed that part. Mm-hmm. Of it, I was not a big fan of all the ceremonial stuff, going and giving speeches and ribbon cuttings. I did it because that's part of the job, but I really enjoyed trying to make the decisions and figure some of that stuff out. Well, and that's where I hope people, as they're evaluating candidates, would look at someone's thoughtfulness and are they looking at the big picture? Because it it should never be growth at any cost or no growth at any right. cost. The reality is, and we're blessed here in Central Florida. I guess it could, some might consider it a curse, but the growth is coming. Uh, there are a lot of places in the country that would kill for the growth that we have because they can't do anything to attract jobs and businesses. Right. We've got that. It's just how do we manage it in a way that we, we can still capture the things we love about our community and try to hold on to that, knowing that the growth is inevitable. And you can see examples of communities that have done it well and, and not so well. And, do you think the men and women in Congress that are military comport themselves a little different than some of the others? I, I probably have some blinders on there, but I'd say, yeah. I mean, I think you do, too, because we they do. have a different background we and do. a different discipline. Well, so there's there's a lot of different, I think, aspects to that. Uh, and one of those is that we have all served on a mission that was bigger than ourselves, that was apolitical you had to get the thing done and you had to, do, you couldn't do it up by yourself. You had to rely on working with others. And, uh, you know, I tell folks when I, the day that I shaved my head and raised my hand and swore the oath, of the constitution as a plea at the Naval Academy, you know, we, in my squad, we had blacks, whites, Hispanics, Asians, uh, and you didn't care wealthy, poor East coast, West coast, uh, New York. I mean, it, it didn't matter. You know, we all had, it was yeah. a cooperate to graduate yeah. and, and we got the job done. And so that's driven into you. And um, so that's a piece of it. I also think that the exposure we get to the broader world, uh, I, I tell people, you know, I, I love that we treat our veterans better now than we did the, in the Vietnam era. Uh, but I, I got four, far more out of serving in the military than I ever gave. And, and I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. And I wish everyone had the opportunity to do that. You know, I've, I've traveled to 70 or more countries. I've had a chance to experience other cultures. I I call my deployments my U.S. appreciation tours because it's nice to go visit other places. Every time I'm on a plane coming home, I'm thankful to come back here. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that. I mean, it's, we have the luxury of, you know, being separated by a couple of oceans, even though it's not the three mile an hour world that that we were in a hundred years ago. Um, We've had the luxury to be insulated from a lot of that. And, um, in this day and age, that's that's um, that's an illusion. You know, I think there are a lot of people that feel that we should oh we should just do what we've done before and retrench and we can operate without the rest of the world. That's that's not really the case anymore. It hasn't been for a long time. For the people that complain about our country, who want and complain, my answer <laughs> show is show me a better country. I say go somewhere else. Exactly. I, I say go to the best other country. Right. The best. Yeah. And it. 
you know, people are dying to get to this country for a reason. There's not a problem with people trying to flee the U.S. to get across the border Correct. to Canada or Mexico. Correct. And, and, <laughs> I'm still waiting for a few from right. Hollywood and, to do and that. So, you know, we are so truly blessed to be here and have yeah. the freedom to sit and talk and complain and, you know, do what we do. And it was thanks to men and women like yourself and that have, have done so much over the years. Turn a little bit to geopolitics. I don't mm. want to get into too much. Who's the bigger threat right now, Russia or China? Ooh. Um, they're both significant threats. China, hands down, is is the greatest threat to the to to the free world. Really, right. uh, Russia's Russia's threat is more localized. But we have such tremendous interdependencies with Europe as far as the trade partner. Um, Russia, I don't see Russia in an effort to dominate the world. China absolutely does. I mean, that's that's part of their doctrine. They, Economically and militarily, everything, or, and everything, hands down. Whatever they wake the board, up, that's their job. They, they want to be the the world superpower. They're not looking to share it with us. They're not looking to be subservient to the U.S. and, and uh, that's a real threat. Um, but you know, if you look at demographics, long long term, they're going to have a hard time sustaining their population. But it doesn't mean between now and then they won't eat our lunch. And they have been militarily, economically, in a lot of different ways. And and I think we've been naive. You know, we we were hoping that we could um, spread capitalism and some Western culture, and that they would see the light. And and that's just never worked out well for us. We got to quit trying to delude ourselves into thinking we can make others be Americans. America's we're kind of a, a, a unique kind of special case here. And it really goes back to our founding documents and founding fathers and the premise that the country was set up on. But we can't go make that happen in other parts of the world. It, it, is, is there an effort to try and fix that to where they stop eating our lunch? Or oh, yeah. It, yeah. There, I, there has been a great awakening, and that is probably one of the best bipartisan things I'm seeing happen in Congress. Uh, we have a, 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 a truly bipartisan China task force now that's looking at all angles. Uh, Mike Gallagher is a colleague of mine, former Marine, uh, who's one of the smartest people I know who's chairing that group. And he has really gone out of his way to say this is this is not a political thing. This is about American sovereignty, and, and uh, so we're looking at everything from from uh, you know the business, uh, trade, military, pharmaceuticals, farming, agriculture. I mean everything, all dimensions. Because while and a lot of this has has really happened over the last twenty three years or so since we got involved in the Middle East and put all of our focus there. We completely dropped the ball on pretty much everything else and focused on that. And China, meanwhile, has been continuing to grow and and doing it in many cases using our own capital, using U.S. investment in their economy. We're using our money, our pension funds to invest in Chinese companies to turn around and dominate us. So what's the general overall condition or shape of our military? Are we up for the challenge? You read where, you know, a good majority of the kids can't pass a physical. And then you read about the quote unquote woke ideologies. I mean, you read about all sorts of stuff. What's, are we really okay? Or so, yeah, there's a, that's probably a whole podcast or or more on that. We'll have you back. Yeah. Um, we still have tremendous technology. We have great people serving in our military. Uh, but, 
what we did, again, in 20 years of fighting in the Middle East is we allowed pretty much everything else to atrophy. Our, the size and the, the quality of our Navy fleet is horrible now. It's not nearly up to the task. The Chinese are outbuilding us. The Air Force will say the same thing. Air, yeah, and across the board, it's right. that way. Uh, a little bit different with China and the, and the impact of, of trade and in and, and the South China Sea. Um, you know, in some form or another, almost 70% of the world trade has some sort of touch with the South China Sea. That's a big deal. And um, we we are, I think we've been focused on the wrong things, personally. And you mentioned the, uh, what, the wokeism and things like that. It is real. Um, there are people who would like to gaslight us and say that that's not been happening inside the military, but we've we've got proof you know we've seen right we pulled together some curricula from the service academies you will get anecdotally we'll have reservists will tell us you know when there's such limited time to train a weekend a month and yet they go in and spend an entire uh you know weekend doing sensitivity training and things like that you know we need my personal opinion is as our war fighters need to be able to basically kick ass and take names we have a military that uh i hope we don't use but we don't use it because everybody else in the world be afraid to take us on. I'm a, I'm a strong believer of peace through strength, but you've got to be able to have a credible stick to wield. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to get into wars than it is to get out of them. And, uh, you know, the best way to stay out of them is to, to have a strong, credible force that people know we, we would be willing to use if we had to, but we don't use it freely. We don't use it to go try to make the rest of the world like America. So one of my friends is, uh, Air Force General Jake Palumbo flew F-16s his whole career and, and a bunch of other things. Um, one question he always asked me is, Todd, what are you reading? Hmm. And I'm not a good reader. I never have been. If I had been a better reader, I'd have been a better student. What is it that you're reading right now? So it's it's interesting. My wife gives me a hard time about not reading enough fiction. Uh, I just I gravitate usually towards nonfiction stuff or biographies. I love reading about people's histories, but... Um, well, let's see. This 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 recess, I've tried to force myself to not read political things so much, but um, um, it's very liberating not to read political things. It, it is. gives your mind a rest. Yeah, and we all need a rest. We all need to take a break from it. Um, actually, I was on a flight to Dallas a couple of weeks ago, and there was a lady sitting next to me, and we had not spoken the whole flight. But as we were landing, she goes. I don't normally do this kind of thing, but I just got to tell you, I'm reading this this book that's like the greatest thing I've read in years, and I'd want to share it with you. And uh, it's a it's a book called Outlive by a guy named Peter, Doctor Peter Adia, I think is his name. But it's about um, so this is not political, it's not biography or anything. It's about uh, it's it's met, it's a medical book basically, but how to live a longer life, but also improve the quality of the life right. that's in our years and. I've found it fascinating. I've, I've since bought several copies and I'm going to give to other Good. people. But uh, I just turned 59 last week, so it's uh, I'm kind of at this point in life where it's about longevity and, and making smart choices. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can get away with a lot of crazy things when you're young, but it all starts to catch up with you. So who's better pilot, Navy or Air Force pilots? Oh, Navy, hands down. I mean, and really. I know it's all different. In, anybody can land at the airfield. But, yeah. you know, we, we just have the benefit of doing something that the Air Force guys uh, just haven't practiced on. Now, that said, 
we save a little bit of gas at the end of every flight to practice touch and go landings because right. everything in the Navy is geared towards getting back aboard the ship. Right. And so I would say that the Air Force guys probably have a few more minutes in every sortie that they can they can get one more turn in, uh, you know, one more merge and one more dogfight uh, to, to hone those skills. So they should be better dogfighters. But as, I'd say as far as better aviators, uh, there's no question. Well, the Central Florida Development Council had taken a, a trip to North Carolina a few years ago and uh, Jake and his wife were a few seats in front of me, and we came in for a pretty hard landing. I mean, it bounced. Oh, you can always tell. I'm a little nervous pilot. Yeah. I mean, I'm a nervous flyer. And uh, Jake turned around and said, Navy pilot. Of course. And I uh, <laughs> started cracking up. And John Strang, who I'd mentioned earlier, was a carrier pilot, he said, Todd, we can land in a parking lot if we need to. These oh, yeah. Air Force guys, they have to have eight, 9,000 feet. <laughs> he said, we can set it down wherever we need to. Oh, yeah. You land, the, you know, and you're targeting the three-wire on the carrier. Right. You're really, you're, you're looking at a spot about 30 or 40 feet long that you're trying to land, and, and your run out's only about 100 feet. So, yes. so I, know, I know you got to get going to another appointment. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you said, uh, you say, I really wish you had asked me about that. Is there anything that I left out? Oh, I, don't, I always hate those questions. I, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I am, um, people ask me a lot of times, do you, do you, do you like the job? And I say, you know, I really wrestle with that. And, and I, I don't like the job. I find it rewarding. Um, it's, it's difficult. I don't like, um, it's not a normal environment. It's not, and I don't like the the animosity and the the tension and the. There's a lot of angst around politics now that doesn't make it any better. Um, but um, it's it's very rewarding, and it's something that as long as I have, if I feel like I can be doing some good things for the constituents of Florida 18 and and trying to help make that institution run a little better. Then, uh, then, then I'll do it. But um, it's not going to be forever. I can assure you that. Well, you've got lots of support down here. We appreciate your service to our country throughout your entire adult life, and obviously your family for the last two, three hundred years, <laughs> going back to General Washington. And uh, but it, I appreciate you coming in and taking some time today to talk about some issues, uh, to give us some perspective that maybe we didn't have. I want to thank you, and I want to thank Alice for helping set everything up for us. And uh, I know you're only as good as your staff and your team, and you've got a great one around you. Well, so we have a great team, and one of the things that I have learned that was that uh, that I didn't know is um, how much our local staffs can help fix problems right. for people. You know, you would hope that government agencies would work the way they're supposed to. They don't. They don't. And uh, whether it's the VA, Social Security, passports. Uh, IRS, I mean, you name it. Any government agency, if people are having problems with it, we've got folks that move mountains. You and, have to and have an advocate. Results. Yeah. And that's what they do for you. And it shouldn't be that way, but when we call, yeah. and especially if I call, it's, it, it's amazing how that works. We've had a lot of situations that people have just been banging their heads against the wall, some, in some cases for years, trying to get yeah. resolution, and we can get it really quick. So I would just really urge people to reach out to our office. And if it's not something we can handle, we can get them to the right folks. And sometimes it may be a state issue. Uh, it's not really our jurisdiction, but we will we will field all those calls and, and help get people. At least tell them right. where to direct yeah. and where to go. Yeah. And they hear, try this number. So, yeah. Scott, thank you very much. Appreciate everything you've done. I appreciate you coming by and uh, spending close to an hour with us. And uh, we wish you good luck. We wish you safety and um, hope you enjoy your uh, recess. It should be coming to a close here pretty soon. Yeah, recess isn't the right word, but yes, yeah. I, it's, it's good to be out of, out of D.C. and back yeah. in the free state of Florida for a bit. But thank you. Well, thank you for everything. It. Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you.
Hey, everybody, I want to thank you for listening to Todd's podcast. This has been your host, Todd Dantzler. If you enjoyed this episode, please tune in next time where I interview Major General retired Larry Martin, where we will be discussing his rise up through the ranks to become a general officer in the United States Air Force and the leadership that it took for him to get to that position. I want you to give me a call and please let me know what you think. As always, don't forget to rate, review, follow, and subscribe to Todd's podcast on your favorite podcast app. If you have any questions for me or any suggestions for future guests, please call or text our number at 863-288-0944 or visit toddanceler.com. Again, that's 863-288-0944 or visit my website, T-O-D-D. D-A-N-T-Z-L-E-R dot com. I look forward to hearing your questions and feedback and please take care.